0: You ever encountered things that every once in a while you're not really sure why they happen, but they're just kind of (laughs) weird? Yeah. You know, weird things just happen sometimes. They've got no real reason, no real purpose, um, you know. And we thought long and hard about who ought to do that, and Eddie Evans just immediately came to mind. (laughs) So, you know, just weird stuff, right? I love this series. We haven't even started, and I love this series, because we're going to have fun with this, and we're going to spend some time in God's Word in such a way that we might not otherwise. And so I'm excited for this opportunity. In fact, it reminds me, uh, this weekend is an exciting opportunity, right? When we celebrate um, Independence Day, we celebrate all of the gifts of this country. We celebrate the freedoms that we are so um, thankful for, and we celebrate that there's reason to give thanks itself, right? Right? Independence Day is an amazing opportunity to remind ourselves of the gifts that we share. But have you ever reflected on how we got to Independence Day? Because when you reflect on some of the things that helped led to uh, the Declaration of Independence, it's really just kind of weird. I mean, think with me just for a moment, will you? Just a couple of years before uh, July 4th, 1776, there was what you and I now refer to as the Boston Tea Party, was, was that a tea party? That really wasn't a party, was it? I mean, there was a lot of other stuff going on than that, but we call it a tea party, and that's really just kind of weird, right? And then you think about some of the folks who were very instrumental in the development of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, you think of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, phenomenal men and phenomenal leaders, but did you know they hated one another? They hated one another. They didn't like each other. They didn't like each other's philosophy. They didn't like how they operated. They couldn't stand each other. Can you imagine some political leaders who don't like one another but actually get things done? (laughs) That's weird, right? I mean, it's just phenomenal. Uh, We celebrate July 4th as Independence Day, and rightfully so, but did you know that the the, uh, Continental Congress affirmed and approved the declaration on July 2nd? On July 4th, but it's a little weird that we celebrate on July 4th. It's actually a little, it's even more weird because, do you know, it wasn't actually even signed by everybody until August the 2nd, almost a whole month later. It's just a little weird, right? And then for me personally, this is the most weird part of the whole deal. Some of you will know this trivial fact that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died on the same day, same year, same day. Do you know when that was? July 4th. 1826 exactly 50 years after the declaration of independence and as if that weren't weird enough that those two men instrumental in the whole thing died on the exact same day which happened to be July 4th but 5 years later James Monroe dies on July the 4th 1831 that's just weird isn't it part of what i glean from all that is that sometimes out of weirdness comes good stuff right the Declaration of Independence, an independent nation, the freedoms that we celebrate. But there was a lot of weirdness that led up to it. That's the whole premise of this worship series during the month of July, is that there are things in Scripture that sometimes when we read, we go, what? That was weird. I don't understand that at all. That makes no sense at all. And so part of our goal is to highlight some of these texts that we might otherwise just sort of write off, and acknowledge, first of all, that they exist. And number two, have some fun with it. And number three, let's learn something because there's something to be learned. As a part of what uh, Karen identified is all things in Scripture are good and all things in Scripture are helpful. We just may not understand the ways in which they can be helpful to the ways in which we live our lives. And so there are so many, by the way, we're going to spend only time in the Old Testament because there's plenty of weird stuff in the Old Testament, right? Right? But there's so much that we can't even get it in all of the five Sundays in the month of July. So I want to highlight our Life Plus God podcast, because over the next several weeks, we've got some other Scriptures that we will not cover in in, uh, worship that we're going to cover in the podcast. So be sure to check those out. Again, some of the most strange and weird Scripture passages you've ever encountered in the Old Testament, and we're just going to both have fun with them and hopefully learn something from them. So today we're going to start in the book of Genesis. Great book, right? First book of the Bible establishes exactly why we are who we are and how we came to be. Genesis is full of story after story about that existence and about the whys of our lives and the hows of how we came to be. And we find ourselves at Genesis chapter 6, which is a, a kind of a turning point. So we've had the Garden of Eden story, we've had the uh, snake story, we've had uh, Cain and Abel who obviously didn't do well with each other, and and sin becomes rampant in the world because of their relationship. And then we come to Genesis chapter 5, and in Genesis chapter 5, we have this elongated genealogy that expresses how we got from Adam all the way to Noah. And then it sets up Genesis chapter 6, which will take us from 6 through 9 through the story of the flood account. And a part of what we begin to see is, man, there's a section there in Genesis chapter 6 that we either forgot about or looked right past or clearly didn't understand, and so we just kind of write it off. And so we're going we're gonna to hang our hat right there this morning, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, I'm about to read. What I want to invite you to do today, tomorrow, uh, sometime during this week, is I want to invite you to read Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6 in their totality sometime this week. And you'll get a picture, a bigger picture, of what all is going on here, okay? So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and then let's talk a little bit about it because I'm going to guess that by the time I'm finished reading it, you're going to say to yourself, what? Just saying. First four verses. When people began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that they were fair, and they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh, their days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward— when the sons of God went in to the daughters of humans, who bore children to them. These were the heroes that were of old, the warriors of renown." What? (laughs) Is that not weird? I mean, when you read that or hear that, do you not say to yourself, whether internally or externally, that's weird? It sounded almost, I don't know about you, but I, re, I go back to, I don't know, maybe fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and I think, that sounds just like mythology. I mean, that sounds just like the Greek or the North mythology that, that I learned about in school, right? There, there are um, angelic beings of some kind, sons of God, uh, intermingling and, in fact, um, marrying and, and procreating with the women of the earth. And then there are these giants that are being created. And I think to myself, how did that get in here? Where did that come from, right? Right? You might be surprised to know that scholars, no matter how many you read, all vary on what they believe this text says. If you were to read 10 commentaries or 10 footnotes in your Scripture, you would find 10 different opinions about what this particular text means, why it's there, uh, how it's to be interpreted, because all of those eggheads don't have a clue what it means. That's why, right? But let's talk about it because there actually is some valuable stuff here and helpful stuff, I believe, uh, for our faith. Now, I'm going to sort of invite us to think about one thing before I kind of move on, and that is this. These four verses are a kind of a prologue or an introduction to the flood story of Genesis chapter 6. So I just want you to put a pin in that to to remember. This is a a prologue or an introduction to what it is we're going to learn about Noah and God and the flood and the recreation, and it becomes actually pretty foundational uh, to all of that, right? It's a prologue or an introduction to the flood story. Okay, so let's talk about some of the characters and some of the things that are going on here because it's a little different, right? It's not something we would normally think of or or understand. So let's start in verses 1 and 2 where it talks about the sons of God uh, who take marriage of any woman of the earth that they want. And who are these sons of God? I mean, who who are these people? It's not a common phrase. We have often heard the phrase son of man uh, that often, of course, refers to Jesus. But we rarely ever see in Scripture this phrase, Brene Elohim, which means son of God. Son of God, sometimes in the English translations will be translated as divine beings, just some kind of heavenly group of folks, right? We're not 100% clear who these heavenly beings are, but it says they're the sons of God. The only other place that this exact phrase exists is in that unique book of the Old Testament called Job. Remember Job? Job's the guy who teaches us about suffering. We don't fully understand he has this unexplained suffering that goes on. In fact, his suffering seems to have been caused by God playing a game uh, with some angelic beings. And it's there in Job chapter 1, verse 6, and in Job chapter 2, verse 1, where we see this phrase only, I'm sorry, one day the sons of God came to pay a visit to, to the Lord. And it's in that visit that they have this conversation and devise this scheme. For Job to go through his suffering. So the only other time we see this phrase is in the book of Job, and it's in a, a group of heavenly beings of some kind, whether it's uh, lesser gods, whether it's angels, whether it's uh, somehow a, a different way to describe uh, the, the, the counsel of the deities who meet with God, we're not clear. What we do know when we read Genesis chapter 1 is uh, when God begins to create, It says in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis that God said, let us create humankind in our own image. And when we read over that, we kind of skip over the fact that that's all in the plural. Let us make God in our own image, right? But that's the way it reads. And there are several ways for us to interpret that, but one of those is, well, as Christians, we might say, well, that's, that's language of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That would be perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable. But another acceptable way to understand that is God is speaking, as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 1, to the heavenly court, that there are some other heavenly beings somehow, some way that um, help help him understand what he's about to do in the creation. If that's so, then perhaps that's what sons of God mean, that somehow there are these heavenly beings, we might call them angels, we might call them sort of lesser gods who are in relationship with God, not equal to God, but in connection with God, the heavenly court, And maybe that's what's going on. And if that's the case, you might think to yourself, as I have, well, that ain't right. Those are heavenly beings, and the women are humans, and that's not supposed to happen. That's not the way it's supposed to go. But they get married, and then they procreate, and and all of it uh, happens in a weird way. And so when I read this text, particularly verses 1 and 2, I have to instantly think to myself, something's not right here. And that would be true. We're going to spend some time there in just a minute. Heavenly beings interfacing with human beings in a way that's not normal or a part of the created order. So much so that we find ourselves in verse 3, and in verse 3, we get a strange little insertion that speaks into why this is wrong and what what God's going to do about it. Remember verse 3 says... um, God says, uh, humans aren't going to last forever. Uh, My spirit's not going to abide with them for more than 120 years. Well, you know, fair enough, but that that just seems a little weird. It feels as though that one verse doesn't fit with the other uh, three verses, right? It just feels like it's been uh, stuck on in there. And a part of what we begin to realize is that um, uh, there's something to that number, 120, uh, some would say, as it seems to say, well, that means that the, the span of life of humans is going to be limited to to 120 years. That makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, some of the oldest people we've ever known, kind of, that's, that's about the outside time frame, isn't it? Uh, I think it was roughly six months ago or so, one of the oldest people in the world died, and I, I think they were 119 years old, right? And so you think, well, that, that makes perfect sense, except for this fact. Uh, when you read Genesis, you read about people living to all kinds of ages, both before chapter 6 and after chapter 6. I mean, just remember the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. One of the one of the uh, information pieces that's uh, labeled there is that Noah himself in, in Genesis chapter 5 verse 32, he's 500 years old uh, when he gives birth to his sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And, and then one only has to go over to chapter 9 of Genesis where it says um, all of the days of Noah were 950 years. And you're like, wow, that guy lived a long time. And then you also think to yourself, well, wait a minute, just said right here in chapter 6, uh, the span of human life will be no longer than 120 years. What, what's up with that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Here's what I do know. Um, the Hebrew word that's sort of rendered as uh, my spirit will not abide, you remember it said something about my spirit won't abide with them for more than 120 years. That word in the Hebrew is really hard to translate. In fact, so hard to translate, scholars have often just, uh, they, they didn't know what to do with it, so they just happened to put the word "abide," meaning, you know, I'm going to live with you, I'm going to be with you uh, for 120 years. But there are some English translations, I love the New Living in particular, the New Living translation puts it this way, I will not put up with these humans for more than 120 years. <laughs> Part of what we glean in all of that is God's frustrated, right? God's, God's very disappointed in humanity and the created order because it's not going right. Things are not going as they should, i.e. verses 1 and 2, right? And so part of what scholars say is um, maybe this is God is so frustrated that God's just going to limit humanity and and God's not going to allow them to to exist more than that, right? Another thought that I kind of resonate with a little bit is, um, you know, God's a God of second chances, right? We know that. We're grateful for that. We see that through Scripture over and over again, even the Old Testament, in fact, by the time we get here to Genesis 6, God's already on about their third chance, right? There was Adam and Eve who kind of messed it up. There was Cain and Abel who kind of messed it up. And now these heavenly beings and the human women are kind of messing it up. I mean, we're on like a third or fourth chance. God is a God of second and third and fourth chances, right? And some scholars say maybe that 120 years is not so much about the limit of human life, but it may be about the limit of God's capacity to offer this grace, that is to say, I'm going to give you guys about 120 years, then I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth if you don't get this stuff figured out, right? Maybe that's what this means. I I can't abide or I'm not going to live with this stuff for more than 120 years. I don't really know what the answer is. But what I know is, is God is clearly upset with what's going on in the created order. And then to sort of put a nice little bow on what's weird and what's happening here, we get to verse 4, and it says there's Nephilim in the land. You know Nephilim, right? I mean, that's a word you've used, right, Nephilim? You don't use that word? Some of the English translations give the the most direct translation, the giants. Nephilim's are giants. The Hebrew word seems to say that they are giant people. Some legend identify that they might have even been as high as 9 feet tall, but the word Nephilim literally doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture except one place. And it's a fascinating place because it's in Numbers chapter 13. And just real quick, Numbers 13, is, uh, 13 and 14 is that story where the 12 spies go out to scout out the promised land and to determine whether or not the Israelites can make it over there. And you may remember that uh, when the 12 return, 10 of the 12 say, there ain't no way, we're not going to make it. I don't, know, I don't care what God says. I don't care what God de- delivered. I, we're not gonna make, Those people are harsh. They're big. They're strong. Uh, there's too many of them. There's no way. But Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12, came back and said, yeah, those guys are pretty big. It will be pretty hard. But you know what? God called us to this, and God's going to make this happen. And in describing those people, here's what they say. Numbers 13, verse 33. We saw there the Nephilim. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim, meaning giants. That's what the word literally means. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers, and that's how we appeared to them. (laughs) They're pretty dadgum big, right? If we appear to be grasshoppers uh, to them, then they're big. Some scholars think that Goliath may have been a Nephilim, right, a giant. That's how he was described. So part of what we get by the time we're in verse 4 is that when the uh, sons of God have uh, sexual relationships with the women of the earth, we get these Nephilim, we get these giants. And you begin to realize, oh, wow, these are, these are ancient storytellers, right? They are thousands of years ago telling this story. And this is an ancient way to describe how we get strange and weird phenomena, whether it's giants or whether it's some kind of um, uh, system gone wrong, order turned into chaos, we're going to talk about it in such a way that is imagery and language that makes sense to us some 3,000 years ago that can explain why the world has gone to heck in a handbag, right? That's what this story is about. In fact, when we look at it, we begin to realize, again, remember, it's an introduction or a prologue to the flood story. Right? Remember, that I told you to put a pin in it. Can we pull the pin out now? I'm, I'm going to pull the pin out. We're going to talk about this introduction to the flood narrative. Now, most of us, when we think about the flood story in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and even 9, most of us think, well, you know, that's when the world uh, got all corrupt and everything went bad and God decided to just wipe off the face of the earth with a flood. And most of us would use that as the description, wouldn't we? That that's the flood story. And that would be accurate to the degree that it tells you some information about the flood story. But what I want to suggest is that's not the whole story. It's clearly a part of the story. A part of the story is everything went to heck in a handbasket and God got frustrated and therefore God caused the earth to be flooded. That all is true, but it's not the end of the story. Do you know that the flood story is a salvation story? It's a story of hope. It's a story of new creation. It's a story of God taking what is wrong in the world and washing it away so that all things can be made new. We even talk about this when we talk about our baptism. We talk about how our sins are washed away and we are cleansed and made new. That's the flood story. Friends, to say that the flood story is only about wiping away badness and and desecrating and and demolishing the world is like saying the salvation of, of Christians found in Jesus Christ is only and solely about the cross and the tomb. And it's not, is it? Those are important, and they're highly valuable and meaningful, but that's not the end of the story, right? There's a resurrection. There's new life. There is a way to overcome. The flood story is the same way. Yes, things had gotten really bad. Yes, they had been uh, like they shouldn't have gone and, and things weren't as they should be. But then God washes that all away and creates a newness and a freshness that saves all the animals, saves humans for procreation, and allows all of nature to be reborn. It is a story of hope and salvation. But we cannot get there unless we first acknowledge that everything's gone wrong. It's why, immediately following the introduction, verses 1 to 4, we get to verses 5 and 6, and we hear these so profound words of God. Listen to verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. I mean, could you say it's bad any other way? I mean, that's bad, right? It's all gone wrong. And then verse 6, And the Lord was sorry that He had made humans on the earth and it grieved Him to His It's devastating. Everything has gone wrong. And in an ancient world, the best way to describe that, as only their minds could understand, is that it impacts and is impacted by the universe, by the cosmos, and therefore. Heavenly beings are intermingling with human beings and somehow God knows that that needs to be stopped or limited or somehow uh, done with and they're going to create these uh, unique individuals who are Nephilim, who are giants, and they're going to cause havoc and they're going to be different and it's not going to be the same. And this is an indicative way to describe that the created order has turned into chaos. So what do we learn from this? Where is the the redemption in all this? And I think this is it. I think it's when we realize and remember that when we, as a part of the created order, do not live into God's will and God's ways, weird stuff happens. And this is an ancient way to describe weird stuff. Angels and humans and giants and lifetime spans, and this is how we describe it. And we describe it in such a way that everybody who reads it will think at least one of two things. Either this is weird, or this is a way to describe all things have gone wrong. And that's what's happened. You remember, the created order was in the garden. And you remember in the garden, everything was good. We had an intimate relationship with God. We walked in the coolness of the day. We literally let everything hang out, right? Because in the garden and in God's intended created order, we were able to be vulnerable and we were able to share everything with God and we were able to know that God had all things for us and it was a beautiful and a glorious and a wonderful place until we screwed it up. And it got successively worse until Genesis 6 describes that chaos. And that chaos is indicative of what happens when we don't live into God's will and God's way. And therefore, friends, those of us who... Claim faith in this book, and those of us who accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, and those of us who believe that we are created in the image of God, and those of us who want to do the right thing in God's ways, we are called to right the wrong, to set the chaos back into God's order. And God's order looks something like this Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor. As yourself, know God intimately and share that intimacy with others. I I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's a lot of chaos in the world. There's a lot of things that aren't right, there's a lot of things that aren't well, there are a lot of things that look and are wrong at every level, from all sorts of perspectives, and a part of our responsibility and role as followers of Christ is to help put that chaos back into order by loving God and loving neighbor, even when we don't agree or don't like or don't care for Because you see, there's there's no footnote or no descriptor on the love of neighbor. It doesn't say only when or, you know, only if or um, only shall, right? It, It says love. And so part of the salvation story of Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 and even 9 is to recognize that God wants to wash that stuff away and he wants to recreate it and make it new, and I'm so grateful that we together can be a part of that and that we have the possibility that God could not only wash it away from us but from the world and help us make all things new. What a powerful gift that is and what a wonderful way it is to celebrate the gifts we have this weekend of freedom and of joy and of elation because God really will make all things new. And for that, I give great thanks. Will you pray with me? Holy and blessed God, thank you for the gift of your son Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity we have to help find that newness and help set that ship aright. Help us, Lord, to have the courage to, in the midst of whatever chaos we may be encountering or this world may, may have, that we can find a way to love you and love our neighbors. And I'm convinced, God, and your Scripture says it over and over again, that that will aright the wrongs of the day. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son to help make that possible. For it's in his name, Jesus, whom we know to be the Christ, that we pray. Amen.